and to know your presence so that we can be uh, men and women who glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you talk to people who are not Christians, what is one of their biggest complaints about Christians? The most frequently identified, at least one of them, is that we are not tolerant. Christians are called not only intolerant, but we're also called arrogant. And how do you answer these charges? What, what do we say to that? Now, of course, it's true many Christians are, in fact, arrogant and intolerant. And this is a charge that we can only counteract by our behavior, by our attitudes, by being the kind of people who, in fact, are not intolerant or arrogant. However, even when you and I have the right attitude from the perspective of the world about us, we are too exclusive. It is just arrogant to believe that your Christ is the only way. We are exclusive. We believe that there is only one way to heaven. And on that charge, there is plenty of evidence. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, the way I read it, Jesus' words don't leave any room for doubt. But neither does Jesus' best friend Peter. Peter says in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name than Jesus under heaven, given among men by whom we must be saved. And just to round things off, in case you were wondering, Paul says something very similar. He says in 1 Timothy 2.5 and 6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the appropriate time. What I want to do today is I want to help you and I know how to interact appropriately with the world when they are deriding you, when they are persecuting you, for your belief that there is only one way to heaven. I want you to know what to say and more importantly to do when you are called arrogant and intolerant because of what you believe. The simple fact, the basic argument is that you and I can trust the promises of God for us in Christ to live the life that he created us to live and to be his agents, to be his tools, his means of bringing about the expansion of his kingdom everywhere we go. So in order to do that, if you're looking at your notes, I've defined a couple of key terms in what we're talking about. And the first one is tolerance. Let's look at tolerance. Tolerance means that we are willing to disagree agreeably. It means that we're not going to put up our dukes and get into a fight just because someone disagrees with us. Intolerance really is an issue about attitude. Intolerance is an inability not to let yourself be offensive 
when the good news that we're giving is offensive enough. Tolerance, as everybody in this room knows, however, has come to mean that we need to celebrate those with whom we disagree, and intolerance is reserved for those of us who will not say that everybody's beliefs are equal. Clearly, Christians must be tolerant using the traditional definition. We must disagree agreeably. We must actively engage in a relationship around us, winning people through our attitudes and actions, Because how else will they see that we are loving people, that we serve a loving God? How else can you and I be real people who bring real good news to a real world that is really lost? We are not only accused of being intolerant, we're also accused of being arrogant. Arrogance is a pride. It's a self filling attitude that holds others in contempt. It denigrates those with whom one disagrees. But again, arrogance, like tolerance, has everything to do with the manner in which we present the good news. It has nothing to do with the content of the news that is being given. And again, This idea of arrogance like tolerance has been confused with the idea that the Christian message is exclusivist, that it says that Christianity is the only way to know that you're going to heaven. Arrogance has been confused with the idea that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But no, well... Intolerance and arrogance have only to do with our attitudes. And that is why you and I must never allow intolerance and arrogance to have a place with, among those to whom we bring the good news. We need to have the kind of attitude that is loving and gracious even with and perhaps especially with those with whom we disagree. You and I must work hard so that you and I are not offensive in our delivering of the offensive message. Now, in case you think that I'm just making that up, I want to look at a verse that everybody who's been in Sunday school for any amount of time knows, and that is 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. It says, In your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, notice it doesn't say if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. My friends, this is an implicit promise. It is a promise from God above, number one, that we will face slander when we are preaching God's message. But it is one that if we are trusting God, if we are believing this promise, we will be able to be effective messengers of his grace. 
So, let's now tackle our cause. This, the first section has been a mostly about us, but let's understand what we're dealing with. Much of what I'm going to talk about tonight is a paraphrase from a chapter in this book. It's called To Everyone an Answer uh, by Francis Beckwith, uh, Craig, and Moreland. And this is an excellent uh, resource, by the way. When you run into people asking you questions, what do I do about the fact that uh, there is a God, but there's evil in the world? What do I do about the fact that there are so many religions? Well, this is one of the resources that I go and look at. So with that, let's talk about this idea that people have who are calling us arrogant and intolerant. And the idea is called religious pluralism. Religious pluralism says that any or maybe all religions lead to God or salvation, depending on who you're talking to. And that following any religious path enables believers to reach that religious goal. Now, this is the common stance you will run into everywhere you go. Uh, The three years that I lived in San, Santa Barbara, actually, the most, well, it, it, it just comes out of people's pores. It, it, religious pluralism, this idea that all roads lead to Rome, all paths lead to God, is just the air that people believe, breathe. Now, of course, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it, it really does not compute. All religions make many fundamental contradictory claims they simply cannot all be correct they cannot all agree but furthermore people use this idea of pluralism when they're talking about two different concepts and the first is just talking about the factual claim that various people have different religions well That's of course true. I mean, you don't have to live very long to know that there are many religions. But I think instead of calling it pluralism, why don't we call this religious variety? But pluralism is also used to mean that people are free to choose any religion or none at all. But of course, we're Americans, aren't we? We call this religious freedom or freedom of religion instead of religious pluralism. And My goodness, we are Baptists here, but we are Americans as well for the most part. Shout out to you, Juno, back there. We're making you an honorary American. Uh, We are very much in favor of religious freedom because insofar that Mormons and Buddhists and Hindus lose their ability to practice their religion, we will also lose our ability. So, When someone comes up to you with this garbage about all religions are equal, you need to hold them accountable to the sloppiness of their definitions. You need, first and foremost, to ask as humbly and graciously as possible questions that point out where their meanings don't stack up. Now, this whole idea of religious pluralism, that is a non-Christian idea. There aren't any true Christians who are religious pluralists. But unfortunately, I would say in the last 50 or 60 years, among those who call themselves evangelicals, another 
slightly different idea has taken ground, and it's called religious inclusivism. And inclusivism is the belief that, well, there's one true religion, but if you are genuine or if you are sincere in your other religious beliefs, be it Mormonism or Muslim or uh, Islam or whatever it is, then you too can be saved. Now, I, I don't think that's a problem here in Santa Maria. But if you run into someone who calls themselves a religious inclusivist, if they call themselves an inclusivist, just make one point. And that point is, it's not enough. You can't be lukewarm. You either need to be cold as the pluralist ice, or you need to be warm like the exclusivist Christian fire. You can't be both. It's one or the other. And unfortunately, as I said, many Christians call themselves that. But now what is this idea of exclusivism? I've, I've Exclusivism, sorry, I'm mixing up my words here. Um, I've kind of laid it out for you, but let me define it in one place. An exclusivist says that there is one true religion that leads to God, and attaining the spiritual goal requires a believer to find and follow the one true faith, for other religious paths will not lead to the spiritual goal. Now, I want to make one comment. Every major religion except Hinduism. Hinduism is the one exception to this. Every major religion is exclusivist. They think they are the only one way to get to God. So when these pluralists come around and say, oh, it's all good, they just don't know what they're talking about, or, I think worse, they're trying to push their religious ideas on you. So, with the remainder of the time that I have, I want to do two things. I want to, number one, answer common assertions that people will claim against us. They'll, they'll kind of push this on us to try to uh, basically kowtow us, pro- basically say, you don't know what you're talking about, listen to me. And then the second one, I want to look at what are the arguments that the pluralist state so that we can identify what the problems are with those. So let me begin with uh, their assertions against us. The first one is we've already begun to talk about exclusivism leads to intolerance and arrogance. And you'll hear something like this. This is a common thing you'll hear people say. If somebody asserts that his religion is ultimately true, he is arrogant. And if he says that other religions are wrong, he is intolerant. That, that is the basic idea that is thrown on our face. Now, just from a purely logical standpoint, we can point out where this is wrong. Last Sunday night, we talked about the fact that there is a such thing as religious or spiritual knowledge. You can know that God is real and that God is with you. Um, I, I know I didn't give you guys notes last week. I'm sorry about that. Uh, and I want to say one more thing. You have to remember that even if you don't get every single little jot and tittle 
about these ideas. It's okay. The exposure to them and the fact that you know that there are Christians who know this stuff that you can go to is sometimes enough to have that courage, that moral fiber to stand up against those who are spitting on the cross of Christ. But I also want to remind you just one more time that arrogance and intolerance has nothing to do with the content of what we're saying. It has to do with our attitude. And you and I both need a reminder not to have the kind of attitude that is intolerant and is arrogant. And since I'm the guy who loves thinking about this, that's preaching to myself when I say that. Then another argument against us is that exclusivism is fundamentally violent. They say, look at the Islamic terrorists, and and they're terrorists because they're exclusivists. Look at the Christian uh, problems throughout the century, and they had these problems because they were exclusivists. First, we need to confess Christians and those who claim to be Christian have done absolutely horrific things. And we need to confess that. We need to recognize that. We must condemn these acts and we must forsake them ourselves as Jesus commanded us to forsake them. How did he command us to forsake them? By trusting the Holy Spirit, by fighting anger and bitterness and malice in our own hearts before it bears fruit as violence. But secondly, to reject violence requires a commitment to a truth. And this moral truth is that violence ought to be rejected. How do you get this moral truth? By believing in a religion that rejects violence like Christianity, for example. David Clark said, It is the denial of truth that triggers violence. What history actually teaches is this. When powerful people falsely believe that they are entitled to ignore real, publicly tested truth and to snub the moral truths others live by, violence escalates. Do not allow these mini demagogues that populate your work and the stores you shop at and the places you go to banter you with their bluster and to silence. And the last thing they try to beat us with is that exclusivism is profoundly unfair. The idea that there is only one way to heaven is profoundly unfair. Now, I want to say something about this. If there were one doctrine that I believe the Bible teaches that I could erase, it would be the doctrine of hell. And there are many Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people throughout history who would say the same. Unfortunately, from our perspective, but obviously God is infinitely wiser than us, 
That is not something that we have the luxury to do. We must teach as the Bible teaches. And as I assume that those of us here have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of hell, I think that we need, as we answer this particular dilemma, to know five things. What are they? Number one, we need to know that God desires that everyone be saved. We find this in 1 Timothy 2.4. You don't know who will be saved. But you know that your God wants everything to be sa- everyone to be saved. He wants all to be saved. Therefore, trust him to accomplish his will. The second thing we know, the judge of all the earth will do what is just. You don't know who will be saved. But you know that your God will not be unfair to anyone. Frankly, I think we're going to be surprised who is there and who isn't. Trust the Father. Number three, no one is saved except by the name of Jesus. You don't know who will be saved. But you know that your God will save anyone that is saved based upon the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Trust the cross. Number four, you and I have a job. It's called the Great Commission. And it's because you and I don't know who's going to be saved. But we do know that our God gave us a job to do. Therefore, trust the Spirit. And lastly... God saves everyone who calls upon him. You and I don't have any idea who's going to be saved, but you know that your God will save those who call upon him. Therefore, trust the sovereign and good Jesus of Nazareth. So as you are going about, if someone accuses you And they accuse our message of being arrogant and intolerant. And remember, our attitudes and actions must never be arrogant or intolerant. We must never be. You can rest assured that they don't have a leg to stand on. But what about their message? What about the the religious truth that they are trying to proclaim? What can we say about that? Pluralists will claim that Pluralism is superior because it is more, quote-unquote, open-minded. But David Clark says, and I agree, I have a surprising claim. Pluralism is more subtly narrow-minded than exclusivism. Why is that? I'm only going to give you three examples. The first one is they say that all religions are true in that they produce valuable results. Good citizens people who take care of their neighbors and these kinds of things. In other words, religions are useful fictions, but they're not true in the true sense. Now get this. What's happening here is that the open-minded pluralist says he believes my religion is quote-unquote true, as in it is useful but he actually believes what I believe to be just plain false. If listed the things that we believe, he would say, no, none of that is true. But if he did, he would be 
admitting that his pluralism is false. So he can't do that. Oh, no, no. That's good for you. You believe that. Baloney! Where's the honesty here? If you don't believe me, fine. Say that you don't believe me, but don't give me this baloney that all religions are true. Now, some pluralists will say the same thing, but they'll tweak it just a little bit. All religions are true, but only after they're properly interpreted. Now, in all of my uh, Santa Barbara coffee shop experiences, sitting there, and then you get a conversation with somebody, and who knows what they're going to believe. Oh, my goodness, there's a lot of things out there. They actually won't say this. You're going to have to be in a conversation for a while before they'll actually admit to this. But they have kind of this husk and kernel uh, analogy going on. The kernel is that which they like from any given religion, or that which they like because they see it in a whole bunch of different religions. And the husk is the chaff. It's the stuff you take away before you pound it into bread. But you know what they're doing here, don't you? They're editing your faith. They're saying your faith is, well, if not dumb, at least not enlightened. You should be offended by that. You should say, wait, what's up? If you don't like it, just tell me. Again, David Clark says this. He says, it turned out that the, quote, deeper meaning of all religion is what he or she believed all along. They are simply not taking our faith seriously. He's only accepting an edited version of my faith, which, by the way, looks surprisingly like his own. Now get this. I loved how he said this. His colonization of my religion allows him to feel justified in calling me narrow-minded when he is so open-minded that his brains fell out. Now, the last and probably most common form of pluralism, when, when you really get them on their second cup of coffee at Starbucks, what they'll end up doing is they'll say something along the lines of, well, no one really knows what an infinite God is like. And therefore, catch this, don't miss this, And therefore, everyone's claims about God are equally correct. Which means, by the way, that they're also equally wrong. But I have a question. What if God revealed himself? What if God came to earth and he told us what he was like? What if he did not give us comprehensive knowledge. We will never in all of eternity know everything about God. You're just going to have to deal with that. You won't. But he has given us true knowledge. And if that is true, this whole gig about religious pluralism is up because God has made himself known. Now, You and I are in a very unique place. We live at a time when pluralism is just the air we breathe. And we live in a particular place, not as bad as Santa Barbara, but almost, 
where pluralistic ideas are just, they expect you to have them. Even though you're, oh, I understand, you're one of those Christians, but you're really a pluralist, right? You're, a, you're on the in crowd like us, right? But you have now good information. You have solid, true ideas that you can use. You have resources to make a difference in this world for the kingdom of God. Will you do it? Will you be like many of the children of ours sitting in this room right here who are approved workmen? who study to show themselves approved workmen that is not ashamed. How do you do it? Well, first and foremost, I have to start with this. Know this book. I would rather you spend more time in this book than any other book that I could recommend to you because this is where you will meet the one God who will lead you to heaven. But also read good books. Uh, These are just two of uh, the books that I use. This one is written at a fairly college-age level. You need, you need to actually want to be able to read this to get his ideas. They use big words, but they define their big words. So it's, and it, this is probably the best book in terms of answering specific questions I have. This one, Jonathan Morrow wrote a book called Think Christianly, and he has a website too, thinkchristianly.org. Uh, and what this particular book is, he has gone to different scholars and just interviewed them and found out what they think about all kinds of different matters. Uh, the one that I am roughly um, using to do this series that we're doing is a book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Uh, we still have some for sale back there. I think there's two left, $10 each if you want one. And that one is definitely written at an easier level to understand and get. I meant to write this down on your note card, but I didn't. If you're just interested and you have a specific burning question, go to a place called str.org. That read there isn't supposed to be there. That was a typo. Uh, But www.str.org. Another one is uh, carm.org. Uh, Christian something, something, something. Uh, And, sorry, (laughs) I don't remember. Uh, But that's also a good one. And lastly, think Christianly. The the number one I go to every time is str.org. And he is, they are very good at helping you think through culturally relevant issues. You have the tools. Study, because you need to study so that you can give good answers to those you work with and those you live with so that they too will be sharers in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, we do come before you because we need you. We recognize that we don't bring anybody into the kingdom, only you do. But you have given us the privilege and the responsibility of being your tools to do so. Help us to do so, Jesus, for our good, for your glory, and for the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.